y'all. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast, Montana edition. My name is Ben Fields. This is my podcast. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm in Montana, and I caught up with a an old friend of mine, Matt Copenhaver, uh, who's on the show today. Uh, Matt comes from a, a world of oil and finance and big oil drilling rigs and natural gas. Uh, but he's recently started his own company here in Bozeman, Montana. That's uh, a really interesting company called visitor.us. We talk about that a little bit here on the episode. Uh, I'm away from home, so it might sound a little different, uh, but I hope you guys enjoy our chat. Matt is a brilliant human being, great stories about living in the Middle East, about living in Iraq, what it's like to interface with those people and uh, to be an expatriate in uh, another country in the Middle East. It's super cool. I hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is, me and Matt Copenhaver. We're doing the podcast. I love Montana. I'm glad you do. This is your first time out here, huh? Yeah, I've been here once before, I think. But this is great, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being a good host. Well, it's my pleasure. This is a. Uh, it's hard, hard to be a bad host in this part of the world. And at this time of year, you're you're seeing it at its finest. It's beautiful. July in Montana doesn't get much better. Oh my goodness! We floated the Madison River yesterday, ten miles on the Madison, and then uh, did did some uh, hiking today at Big Sky. We did. We found some fish yesterday. Yeah, I've been fishing the system called uh, Czech nymphing or European nymphing, or and I started teaching it to, to Benny. And uh, our, <laughs> our first little drift, we we got him on the fly, and it was the first time you uh, a fish had ever taken reel from you, huh? Yeah, well, in a while, yeah. First time got got me into my backing. Right on, <laughs> right on, right on. Dude, uh, thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. Appreciate it. What got you to Montana? What got you out here? That's an interesting story, I think. Well, I came out here for opportunity. Yeah, I think that's I think that's why most people move most places is <laughs> is opportunity. Um, mine was was starting a business, and so as you know, I, I started and run a company called Visitor.us, and we help international visitors to America buy and sell cars as an alternative to renting. Gotcha. So our customers are um, like Heath. He's an Aussie guy who um, comes out here to ski. He just finds that being here for ski seasons is his favorite way to see America. And he just wants to keep a truck here so he can be in Vail for three months of the year and then big sky in three months of the next year. We also have people that, um, uh, so he'll buy and keep. We also have people who buy and, um, uh, we'll do Route 66, say, yeah. and then sell their bike in Santa Monica after having bought it in Chicago. And they find that that's just a, a hell of a lot cheaper of a way to to see America for longer than a couple of weeks. Yeah. If you're coming from Europe and you're staying for two weeks, maybe, you know, going the enterprise route makes sense, but it's still a couple thousand dollars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you can buy and sell a vehicle, um, you know, if you're staying for a longer period of time, it starts to not make sense to to rent a vehicle. Yeah, that's right. And we don't think about it as Americans because we have this wonderful option of being able to just drive our car somewhere. Oh, I hear the Rockies are great in the summer. I've got the summer off because I'm a teacher. I'll just drive from Knoxville and spend the summer in the Rockies. And we we take advantage of not having to pay enterprise 10,000 bucks, right? With our own car. But because we're on this big, you know, kind of, kind of island, uh, you know, you got to fly here or take a boat to get here from Europe. You know, 
you you can't bring your own car. Right. And so um, what we're solving for is this is this American experience of 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 uh, exploring this big wide open space and and meeting the people that you meet and 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 having the serendipity of just being on the road and, 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 uh, maybe, you know, some people here, maybe you don't know anybody there, but by the time you've left, you've, you've got friends everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting place because the United States, you can drive three or four days and, and, and not go through a customs checkpoint, you know, or anything. That's and that's what people in Europe can't do. Right. Yeah. You know, and to, to a certain extent, I mean, they've got the Euro now, but, um, you know, just the fact that we're, we're all in the same operating system. In the you know, States. Yeah. yeah. Our, our, um, our money's the same. Our language is the same. You know, for the most part, our laws are the same. Um, and you, 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 um, we don't think about, um, the difference a thousand miles makes in our lives from say Virginia to New York, um, versus someone a thousand miles, um, you know, from Spain to Ukraine, totally different op- operating systems in Spain and, sure. and Ukraine. Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah, visitor.us helps people explore America and the first product that, that we've got that helps people visit the U S better for longer is, um, the system that helps them buy and sell cars as an alternative to renting. But the hope is that, that this is just the first product of, of many, um, that will sort of break down the friction involved in, um, in being a di- in a different place. I mean, you've traveled abroad, you, abroad, you know that, you know, there's like this cognitive overhead of being in a different place. You're, which way do I look to cross the street? You yeah. know, which, which, fuck, what's the money here? Yeah. Um, what, um, like, where can I, where can I drink and where can I not drink? Um, there's all these, there's all these, um, these um, calculations that are going on, on, on in the back of your head when you're not in your element and, um, and all these problems that you face, um, you know, buying a car is, is, is a great one. Registering it is, is really difficult, but, um, you know, you might find that getting a credit card or buying a house, the idea in general is, is that there's a, there's a lot of problems that international visitors to another place face when they're, when they're away from home. And, um, let's start solving for them. Let's gotcha. start building, building services that are built yeah. for their problems. So, so what, what, what got you excited about that? Cause you've been, you've lived other places and you've had these problems. Is that it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so starting from childhood, I, I just moved around a bunch. Yeah. Cause I think when I met you, I, I knew you to be from Seattle. We, we met the first day of, of high school. That's right. Yeah. 1999 or something. Yeah. Like put that. yourself in my shoes. I was, I was, uh, you know, coming from Seattle, I'd lived there basically my entire life and, and was, you know, moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, of which I knew nothing. And, uh, um, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I met awesome, awesome people like you and, and, and all of our friends in Knoxville, but, um, it helped me appreciate that, man, not all of America is like Seattle and not all of America is like Knoxville. Mm -hmm. We got this, this big, wide, you know, diverse set of views and, 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 and perspectives and backgrounds and that, that we just happen to use this same money and, yeah. uh, and talk the yeah. same language and stuff. I always think it'd be interesting to take somebody from like the Northern part of Maine, introduce them to somebody from 
the bayou in Louisiana mm-hmm. and see if they could communicate with each other. <laughs> they're I using bet. the same language. Or, you know, they're Americans. Uh, and if they're if they're the same age, they're talking about the same Simpsons episodes. Yeah, yeah. They're talking about right. They got the same sort of meme culture down. Yeah. But um, but that's kind of that's kind of what what started it um, was being an uncomfortable kind of visitor everywhere you went or kind well, of yeah. seeing that there were problems. Yeah, exactly. Inherent to relocating. I mean, I didn't see. I, I won't tell you that I saw that problem when I was fourteen when I moved to Knoxville, but then when I moved from Knoxville to Boston when I was 18 and then moved from uh, Boston to Houston, you know, when I was 24 and then moved from Houston to the Middle East, um, uh, you know, when I was 26 or 27, um, I start to, I started to, um, you know, every time you do something, it becomes less and less hard. Mm. You've got, it's less and it's, it's, it's more and more like, okay, I know that this is going to happen and it's going to be like this, because I did it last time, there's some things I don't know about, but uh, but I've been through this process somewhat before. Every time gets a little bit easier, um, and so I've just made a bunch of those those hops. Right. You know, I just I described those kind of you know bang bang at you just now, but um, but um, through the course of that life, I, I I you know I saw my I didn't see myself as a as a as a t- Tennessean in high mm. school. You know, I didn't see myself as a as a a Seattleite when I went to college, I didn't right. see myself. I was just always kind of peeking in on everybody and, 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 um, yeah, it set me up for, um, just for looking for that problem. Um, and, uh, when you end up scratching your own itch, you find that there are other people that, that have that same itch and maybe you can help them out too. Yeah. It's kind of a fish out of water everywhere you've been along the way. If, I guess so. I'm, I'm trying to fake it as well as I can everywhere I go. <laughs> So when you when you left Knoxville, you went to Boston University, right? That's where you went to college. I did, yeah, yeah. How, how was that? You you got through it in pretty good time. I've always <laughs> been like this efficient dude who who likes to not mess around and do things in the most efficient way possible. But you went and got some pretty heavy duty degrees in a relatively short period of time, didn't you? Well, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I didn't scoot through there. I'll put it that way. I. Um, I studied, I studied some unusual things in retrospect. So I got into this program that was a, a make your own major kind of program. And I, um, um, this was 2003. And um, I thought that, um, that either China or the Middle East was going to be very influential in the next sort of, in, in, over the course of my early and mid career, you know, and over the course of my life. So I started I started um, taking Middle Eastern studies. I chose the Middle East over over China, and I um, um, I ended up also taking finance classes. You know, a mentor of mine, maybe freshman or sophomore year, he says, "Just do yourself a favor, take an accounting class, understand the language of numbers um, and uh, the stories that they can tell, so that when you're told stories." you can validate them for yourself. And I respected this guy and I, I took a class and I said, I said, Oh, this is kind of interesting. Um, and, um, in 2009, I finished with, um, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in, in middle Eastern studies and finance. Um, and, um, and that's uh, a weird, weird combo. It was a weird combo. I was the only one of my, <laughs> I was the only one who had that major. I mean, it's yeah. a make your own major program. And the beauty of the program was that it allowed you to, to ex- explore, um, 
you know, things outside of a, a standard curriculum. So you got to start to um, see opportunities at the intersections of, of, um, of, um, of fields of study or of, of industries or of ways of life. You got to see intersections of them in a very different way. Mm. And that's what, um, that's what, um, uh, that's what has sort of guided me from, from, from then on. Right. So did, did you take Arabic classes to learn how to speak Arabic and got, get fluent and all that? I did. I, I think anybody who speaks a foreign language will, will, will get a bit bashful if, if, uh, if saying the word fluent, right. You know, unless, cause that you're always comparing yourself to someone who's better than you and then right. someone who's, whose mother tongue it was and, yeah. and all the rest. But I, I spent, um, I studied for, for six years through my bachelor's and master's program and I studied abroad in Jordan. Um, and so I got, I got pretty good at it. Yeah. Learning the language, learning the language, learn to talk to new people, yeah. um, and, um, or, or talk more, more authentically with, you know, with, with a group mm-hmm. of people that, um, you know, that I didn't grow up with. Right. Um, and so, so, you know, throw yourself back to sort of 2007, 2008, 2009. These were the years that I was going to get my bachelor's, you know, and then I ended up getting a master's degree for a guy who was really interested in, in, in finance. The world turned upside down in 2008. Right. I was, um, um, I was super excited to, to, you know, go and, and, and work in corporate finance and, and I was just gung ho about it. Um, and, um, what I learned, um, uh, well, financial crisis hit and, and the plan was to, uh, was to, to use the, the intersection of my skills, Middle Eastern studies and finance and go and work in, in, in finance, um, in Dubai, in the Middle East, somewhere, mm-hmm. probably Dubai. And, uh, you know, 2008 happened and, and that sort of, um, that put a pause on that. And, and what ended up happening was, was the only, uh, um, I sat back after graduating and I worked for about six months as a, as a waterproof, a basement waterproof salesman. I remember you know this. Yeah. I remember this. Yeah. Um, uh, it was just super interesting going around different people's households and, and sitting down and trying to sell them basement waterproofing, <laughs> you know, at their kitchen table where they fed their kids and, and all that stuff. And, <laughs> and, um, and it, it just, it was, it was really kind of soul crushing. And, and I just sort of, uh, in the beginning of, of 2010, I just sat down and said, all right, I've just spent a lot of money and a lot of time getting these degrees and I'm not using them. How am I going to do it? And, and the answer that I came up with was, was a pretty obvious one in retrospect. I went and applied to all the oil and gas companies that, that, that had a presence in the Middle East. Right. Which is all of them, uh, <laughs> all the big ones. Um, yeah, for the most part, I don't think Chevron has any, any, any operations in the Middle East. Um, but I basically applied to all of them in Houston and I got rejected by all of them, got an interview with Shell Oil Company and, um, and had the interview and, you know, I'll be damned. They hired me. Yeah. They hired me. And I was just on top of the moon because I, I, you know, I graduated like 12 months before, didn't have a job. This is 2008. This is the first crisis I've ever been through. And like, it's, 
I haven't, you know, the world's going to end, right? Yeah, it, it was interesting because when when people that are our age got out of college, got out of spending, and this was really when college tuitions were going up at public universities and private ones, like mm-hmm. BU's private, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, expensive is what it is. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all expensive, and then and then people that are our age leave university with these great degrees, only to find themselves in one of the toughest job markets in recent memory. It, it, um, I couldn't have said it better. It was, it was really kind of a shock to, to, um, to our generation and, you know, especially, um, you know, growing up as, as sort of gold ring focused as, yeah. as our generation was or brass mm-hmm. ring focused, you know? Um, but, um, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 taught us it sort of cauterized us if you like it taught us like that crises happen and they're really shitty sometimes but then the world moves on yeah and um and actually i think what i learned about about 2008 having gone through it as in my as a young 20 20 something there was a lot of money made afterwards I mean, everyone who, who, who bought a house at the bottom, you know, who didn't panic when there was blood in the streets, um, you know, actually turned out pretty, pretty good, um, you know. And so um, that was just that was a, a, a lesson for, for me to go through. And I couldn't have learned it in a textbook. You know, I had, yeah. to, had to go through it myself. And so so it's 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 2010. I find myself in Houston, Texas, working working for. Um, working for uh, Royal Dutch Shell, and I was um, I was just at first very excited to get in the door, you know. And then and then I was I was all right. Well, I didn't come here to work in Houston my entire life. I came here to go to to the Middle East, and so I just started asking people within the company. Started asking people in the company. I, you know, I meet people at happy hours at, you know, at Exxon and I sort of ask, you know, what they were doing or, or, you know, other international companies. But, um, but I primarily focused, you know, internally and I ended up just saying to people the same thing. Hey, my name's Matt. I read, write and speak Arabic. I came here to go work in the Middle East. Do you know anybody that works in the Middle East? Mm. Um, and, um, and a lot of people didn't know anybody, but some people did. And then when I got to, when I had connections with those people, I would make sure I get a phone call with them and I would do two things at the end of the phone call. I would say, I would thank them for their time and for, you know, spending it with someone they'd never met. And then I asked them for three more people. Hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, followed up when they, you know, when they didn't give them to me right away. And then, and, and so pretty soon I didn't learn this till later, but like the office, the, the finance office in Dubai was, was like. I was like this infamous guy. Like, did you hear? There's this like create. There's this American who speaks Arabic. He's has he talked to you yet? He talked to me last week. Mm. Um, and so I just sort of busted my hump to to get to know the people that were um, that were in the Middle East. And, and and I think just a little bit less than two years later, I I, I found myself in Muscat, Oman, uh, where um, where Shell sent me on a uh, to a joint venture that it, it owns part of. Um, and I spent uh, I spent a year and a half there. And that and was my first uh, sort of international assignment. Interesting with Shell. Mm-hmm. So Oman is on the Persian Gulf, right? That's right. It's on the Arabian Peninsula, 
And um, I think about Oman and Yemen as like the New Hampshire and Virginia, <laughs> uh, excuse me, the New Hampshire and Vermont. You know that they're sort of there, but you don't know which one is on the left <laughs> or which one's on the right. Gotcha. But uh, Oman is the one that's on the on 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 the upper right of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it's uh, it's a wonderful fit place, super conflict free. The, the the people are 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 um, are special and amazing, and the the you know the um, the geography of the place is incredible. Yemen was not so conflict free at the time, was it? It, it was not. It yeah. was not. Um, was there any, were you nervous at all about, about being close to a place that was not having the best go at that time? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I think when I signed up, you know, to start studying the Middle East, I, I understood that I was getting myself into a region that wasn't the most, um, stable. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, um, I saw that firsthand. I, so I studied abroad in Jordan. Oh yeah. Um, when I was a, when I was a junior, um, fall semester, I went over and I think it was the, it was 11, nine, 2005. that some, um, that someone bombed the, the, the Western hotels in Amman where I was living. Um, it was, um, Amman is, the, is what it's called. Yes. In Jordan. Yes, that's right. The capital of Jordan, um, uh, was where, which was where I was living at the time was, um, uh, was, uh, bombed in an attack that was, uh, masterminded by, I think, Sarkawi. Um, uh, and, um, and this is an, an attack on civilians. It's not like, you know, attacking a military base, right? No. Yeah. It was, it was on a hotel at a wedding. Um, it it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad news. Um, but, um, what happened in the city when that, when that went down, was it just terror and chaos? Um, what I remember most was people, um, just getting in their cars, driving around with Jordanian flags and saying, no, not here. Really? Not here. This isn't us. We don't stand for that. You know, they were, you know, chanting the traditional, singing the traditional songs, you know, being proud, proud of, of, of being Jordanians and that this, you know, this sort of act of terror wasn't going to shut us up at our homes. Hmm. That's what I remember about it. But the, the, uh, I think it, it helped me understand that, um, we, who, those of us who live in places where you don't have to worry about getting bombed, it's, um, it's, it's it, the feeling that it's an impossibility that it only happens other places is, is, is I've, I found, I learned that to be, or felt that to be kind of a luxury, mm. um, because of the whole lot of the world just doesn't, um, you know, life and, and death are just a lot more, um, Fragile, tangible, right there. They're yeah. They're they're they they they're they're more part of 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 daily life. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that that you know acts of terrorism like that aren't horrible. But but um, it 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 again it, like it cauterized me. You know, in the way that like I could uh, understand that. Well, somebody set off a suicide bomb in the town that I was living in. I didn't. You know, I didn't know about it until I read it about it in the paper um, the next day. 
Um, and so, you know, when you ask me, how does it feel to have a war going on in the next country over, um, it's, it, uh, uh, you know, talking about Yemen and Oman, um, it's, I was able to distance myself from it mm. in a way um, that maybe I wouldn't have had I had I not had that experience in gotcha. Georgia. So you're in your mid twenties, late twenties, somewhere in that world, mid yeah. to late twenties. Yeah, I was uh, probably 24, 25 years old. And you moved to a, an expat colony, right? Isn't it? Aren't there different laws for the people that li- that are uh, that live in Oman and uh, are citizens of Oman, and then people who come in from other countries? Well, that's a, that's a complex question. Um, I, I will tell you that, that, um, Oman, um, oil was discovered there in the, in the 1960s and it was discovered by, um, a consortium of, of Western oil companies. And in the seventies, Oman said, Hey, 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 you guys are taking hundred percent of our resource. We're not, you know, we want to participate in this too. And they said, all right, we're going to have 60% of the rights to this oil in our own country. Mm. Um, and so you ended up with the situation with the government controlling a, a majority share and, and also these Western companies that operated in environments that Oman didn't see, you know, Shell was operating in, in Brunei, you know, in the United States and Netherlands. So it had all of these, you know, all of this technical know-how of very, very different situations to draw mm. on to be able to contribute um, and so, you know, from the seventies, there developed this, this, um, uh, expat community of people coming in and, and, uh, developing the oil resources, certainly, but, um, developing the roads, the telephone systems, the airports, um, it, you know, it was a country that, um, I think in, uh, 1970 had 10 kilometers of paved roads and no telephones, um, 1970, um, it's know, not that long ago. No, no, no secondary school in the country. And in 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 fifty years, the 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 Sultan um, Qaboos just passed. Um, he just modernized the country, raised the standard of living for uh, for just about everybody mm. um, enormously, and um, um, uh, and brought in widespread you know prosperity, or, or or at least more prosperity than they were experiencing. And so also the, um, uh, you know, us expats were, were moving in. And, you know, when you ask, are, are, you know, were we living on a colony? It was that the, the oil company just built a set of houses or built a neighborhood in Muscat where just all the shell folks would live. Mm. Okay. You see what I'm saying? So it wasn't like you were fenced in. No, okay. no, no. It's well, just a place where where Americans, Australians, you know, Europeans happen to live that work for Shell. That's right. That's right. And they were mostly, um, uh, you know, it was it was an incredible experience for me as an American twenty uh, five year old um, because they, they were mostly um, coming from the UK. There were most a lot of Scottish people there. Mm. Um, there were a lot of Dutch people there, um, and um, uh, you know. Uh, quite a few folks from the UK and, and lots of other places in the world, Venezuela. Um, really? Yeah. Um, lots of Venezuelan expats in the oil industry um, it, that are sort of in diaspora. Um, and so the idea is that, that I got thrown into this situation where 
You know, I was I was the only American around. And most of these people, by the way, were in Oman because they had developed experience operating fields in the North Sea over 30 years. And so they were brought in to 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 up the the technical excellence of of the um, of the the pumps maintenance department here. Sure. And so these, these I, I stepped into this group of people that that had lived long lives and had full careers and had awesome experiences and had lived in places like like Brunei or Russia or Nigeria. Um, and um, and, you know, I went in thinking that I was going to have one cultural experience, which was, you know, the Omani cultural experience. And I and I left, you know, having been like thoroughly indoctrinated in the British Really? <laughs> you know, uh, culture and experience. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fun time, but it, you know, in very unexpected ways. Interesting. So how long were you there? Five years? So I was in Oman for a year and a half. The assignment was a was short-term international assignment. I was supposed to be there for a year, ended up getting an extension. And as this was happening, the, um, uh, Shell was developing another um, uh, opportunity in another country. Um, so this country had tremendous oil resources that um, um, that were being produced and a whole bunch of natural gas that was coming out of the ground with those um, uh, uh, with that oil. Mm-hmm. That's a byproduct, right, of, of mining oil sometimes or of, of drilling for oil sometimes? Yeah. You hit natural gas too? Yeah. Well, if, I mean, if you think... So basically, um, a, a barrel of hydrocarbon, a barrel of oil, is comprised of a whole different set of molecules, and all those molecules are, are hydrocarbons. Which is um, the simplest one is methane, which is um, four hydrogens surrounding a carbon. Okay, and that's the one we use methane mostly for cooking. We use it for um, uh, electric electrical generation. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got ethane, which is two carbon. Uh, molecules surrounded with six hydrogen molecules. Um, And then you've got uh, um, uh, propane, butane, three and four carbon molecules, all the way up to um, molecules that are in the 16 or 17 carbon range. Those are our gasoline. Okay. 14, 15 is like what makes jet fuel. Um, So it's very natural for uh, uh, an oil field to, to produce a whole spectrum of different products. Gotcha. And so all the hydrocarbons, not just not oil. Just, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so this country, Iraq was producing a whole, uh, starting to produce a whole lot of oil. Um, um, and they were producing a lot of natural gas with it. And because of Iraq's unique situation that, you know, they had been through a civil war and an invasion. And before that they had gone through uh, 14 years of sanctions before that, they had gone through the Iran-Iraq War, mm. 1980 to 88. Um, so they, um, all of their infrastructure had had been through the been through the works. Yeah, been through the ringer by that time. That's right. And so and so the gas infrastructure, the, any any dollar that came in, they put it towards the oil because the oil they could sell on the international market, get dollars and buy produce or cars or whatever that they needed to bring into the country. The gas would only be used within the country by Iraqis um, who were just passing money between each other. And so any money that came in, it never went to the natural gas. And so by 
the time I was in Oman, which was 2000, uh, 2012, 2013, um, Iraq was, f- was um, producing a billion cubic feet a day of natural gas that they couldn't get to consumers because the pipelines were so corroded because they hadn't been kept up in, in 30 years. Mm. And so when the pipelines were corroded, and the gas couldn't get it anywhere. The only solution that they had was to was to set it on fire. At the rig or when it comes out of the ground? When it comes out of the ground. So it's just, just nat- natural gas going into the atmosphere, being combusted, and off it goes. Yeah. Because there's no way to capture it. There's there's no way to capture it and transport it to the to, to the place that it needs to be. To the marketplace. Consumed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you might ask, well, why do you set it on fire? One reason is that um, natural gas, methane, ethane are something on the order of like 23 times more of a, um, a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. So they're very, they're not great for the environment. It's also not great to just have a big cloud of, you know, flammable gas just sort of floating around a place. If someone goes out for a cigarette, you know, it could be bad news. So they were burning a billion cubic feet a day of natural gas. And that was enough to, to, to power 15 million Iraqi homes. Mm. And so, as I was working in Oman, the final stages of this deal whereby Shell would, would come in into a joint venture with the Iraq South Gas Company were coming together. And the, the, the broad strokes of the deal were Shell brings its expertise and, and uh, its capital to, uh, to this joint venture. The Iraqis bring their, um, um, their 5,000 staff, their $1.5 billion worth of equipment and pipelines, and, um, uh, and the, right to pr- the right to process this gas. Um, and we sort of build this modern company together as, as you know, 5,000 Iraqis and 500 Shell staff, you know, and, and, and um, a pile of money and metal. And, and the idea was to, to take this gas that was being absolutely wasted and bring it to um, to the homes of Iraqis to to generate power for them for them to cool their homes for them to um, uh, create companies to do industry to to um, uh, to live a normal life that's yeah. not interrupted by by power outages and stuff. It's something we take we take so for right. granted. That's so fundamental. Ha- has it helped it helped them to be powered by natural gas instead of you know. Whatever, whatever their reactors are, or I'm assuming it was well, they uh, were, coal or something like that. They were well. It, um, it when the power went out, everyone everyone had a generator at their house. So mm. first of all, everyone had to spend five hundred dollars to have something that the government should have provided them, you know, or the power company should have been able to provide them at a reasonable price, but they had to go out on their own and buy their own generator and buy gasoline to run off it. So instead of having like five or six power plants, you know, running on natural gas or whatever thing, you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of little backyard jennies that are just throwing stuff into the atmosphere, making a racket and costing people a fortune. You know, they've got to run gasoline so that they're, they've got to buy gasoline so to keep their lights on so their daughter can study at night. Um, and so, and so I think that, um, uh, it was a, it was an incredible professional experience for me because, um, you know, we weren't just making candy bars. Right. You were enriching people's existence. <laughs> we were giving, we were giving them 
I like to think this fundamental building block that I had always taken for granted. I had never even thought about it, man. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but that's like, that's how groups of people grow in, in even move along into, you know, uh, I guess adapting to the new, to the new world, to the new marketplaces. There's so many people that don't have those fundamental needs met and they're, and so they're left behind, but then you make these small or what seem like incremental changes. Like they don't have to take their electricity for, for granted anymore. And so that, that just raises the floor a little bit for them. Right. It does. Which, which you might not see the ceiling for a hundred more years, but it gets you closer to it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a good, it, it's a good reminder that you got to start somewhere and that, you know, building blocks like that are, are what can ultimately change the world. And I I look at it like you see, you see like church churches or, or, or mission groups go somewhere and do something in communities that are underserved. And like, it, it might seem like they, you know, they're just doing it because they want to feel like they're, you know, doing something to help, another person. But, but the, but the biggest, like the overarching idea there is that you go to this community, you make that community a little bit better. You make education in that community, maybe a little bit better. And one day a leader comes out of this, you know, this community and, and, and then carries the torch a little bit more and helps enrich these places. And I think it's really cool that that you guys were able to both do something that financially made sense, both for, you know, shell, but it also helped the Iraqis. It it wasn't like you were just taking all their resources and and walking away with a bag of cash. I I think that's the, um, that's certainly an idea that a lot of people have in their head that, that oil companies, um, you know, bash people over the heads and and just take their money. Um, I thought what was cool. One interesting thing about this deal is that, um, you know, the, the Iraqis, um, you know, they're, they're, they're circumspect people. They're, they're on the watch for, for someone trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And, um, and so when, when Shell was negotiating this deal, you know, they didn't quite have the, um, the tools to understand like what would make a good, um, uh, you know, price per unit of gas produced, for instance, or a bad one or how, you know, getting payment, um, um, for assets, um, at a certain time would be better than, than at another time. And so, um, something that I thought was, was, was pretty interesting is that, is that Shell said, right, you guys, you guys can't, you guys can't independently evaluate the economics of this deal. Let's put you through a boot camp that shows your economists how to evaluate the economics of any deal. Hmm. And then you plug what we're saying into your model that you build and you tell us if it's a good deal or not. Interesting. So, um, it, uh, it, it was a, a, um, you know, a clever and interesting way to, to get around the problem of, of you have to trust us what this is, what the deal says. Um, but you're educating them in a way that helps just not just, you know, within the confines of this deal, it also helps them long-term. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so it was, it was, um, it was an opportunity to, 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 um, for everybody to win. And, and, and that's what makes a good deal. And that's what, um, 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 that's why I was proud to work on it. You know, it wasn't an oil company going in and, 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 uh, um, pillaging another place. Um, um, 
you know, I like to think that that uh, both sides negotiated from a from a place of understanding and and um, and came to the conclusion that that going forward in this way was 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 going to be good for everybody. That's awesome. So I, I remember it was uh, it was. I've always been infatuated with what you've done. I think it's so interesting and, and it's just so outside, like going to a Spanish speaking country is, is a, you know, is a stretch for me, you know, going to another country. I mean, I love it. I love traveling to these places, but it's definitely feel uncomfortable because the culture is so different. And, and, um, to, to be able to feel like you're at home in one of these places is, is, um, is some work. And so I wonder with, with your, living in Oman, you're obviously somewhat becoming acclimated to, um, living in the Middle East and, and cultures around there. But as you said too, you know, a, a lot of that was also, a, a a bit more of a foray into British and UK kind of culture, because that's the kind of people you were hanging out with. But I remember when you told me you were moving to Dubai, I, I, I thought that's a big, that's a big move. It's a, it's a big, place with heavy lifting in the, you know, global markets and, and it's a place where a lot of stuff happens. And then after you moved there, I didn't talk to you about what you were doing for quite some time. I think because partly may, it may have been, you know, secret or, you know, it was the state department watching your conversations, you know, because you're working in Iraq or. Well, I'll tell you what it was. It was, it was my mom. It was my family. Really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't tell anybody, man. I didn't. I, can you believe that? So I went and worked for for three years in Iraq, and the whole time, my, you know, everybody that I knew, you know, that might have some contact with my family, I made sure to tell them I was working in Dubai. But you weren't. No, I was flying into Iraq every week. I was putting on a bulletproof vest. I was I was shoulder to shoulder with five thousand Iraqis, and and um, and you know, not in in. In Dubai, I was in Dubai for the weekends. You know, we is that we, where you lived? Air quotes. Yeah. So, I mean, Iraq it wasn't at a, wasn't you know in 2013 through 16 when I was there it was not in a situation where like families would go. You know, Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you know, if 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 you're counting on your expat workforce to 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 come in and provide the the expertise uh, to to you know sort of uh, bring this operations into a 21st century kind of thing. Um, you, you, you want to have some, you can't just confine yourself to bachelors and bachelorettes. Right. right. Yeah. You ha- you have to have people who are willing to relocate a family. Yeah. Yeah. Compensate, compensate them well, all that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, um, and so you, you just, it wasn't safe to, to, to have, you know, people's, um, families in Iraq. So there were two situations. You had, uh, commuters, which is what I was, which we, um, basically commuted into Basra, into Iraq during the week and then commuted back to, uh, Dubai for the weekends. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, I, I didn't have a family at the time, but that's where, you know, everyone was, was with their family there, their, 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 their kids, you know, went to school in Dubai, their spouse, you know, lived in Dubai, you know, maybe probably worked, you know, in the city. Um, and, um, uh, and so, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't a complete, it wasn't a fabrication from whole cloth, Benny. That yeah. I was in Dubai. Yeah. It was, it was, it was just kind of a, a uh, uh, you know, I embellished the time, the amount of time that I spent in Dubai during, the, you know, to, to to folks back home. Yeah, it was after you got back that I realized that that was the case. The bulletproof vest thing, the fl- you know, flying over there and 
is there like a, why, why did you have to protect yourself? Why did you have to, why did you have to wear a bulletproof vest? Is it just never know when somebody's well, going to turn on you? <laughs> no, it wasn't my decision. Yeah. It, um, it was the company's decision and um, the company is, um, uh, you know, believe it or not, oil and gas companies are incredibly um, health and safety conscious. Mm. Um, you know, a- anytime someone gets hurt on the job site, it, you know, you got to stop work. And, you know, that puts projects behind and co- makes them run over budget. So, um, so the, Shell in particular, you know, was always focused on health and safety. And, and um, this was... Uh, this was just one of the protocols and, and the risk wasn't necessarily um, the, the risk was, ex, um, was kidnapping and extortion. Hmm. So they grab an American and then use them as collateral for whatever. Yeah. Or, uh, uh, you know, a, a Brit or a Dutch or, or yeah. a, anyone, you know? Um, and so the um, we would get the daily and weekly security briefings. And so we, we had a, we had a, um, we had reports. I, I I saw reports every day on on the violence that was happening in uh, in Basra and in Iraq, and most of them were man shot other man because he slept with his wife. Right. Man shot brother because he stole fifty dollars from him. You know, it was it was it was it was city crime. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so th- that's one of the things that that helped me feel more comfortable with, with, uh, with going in the country, um, is, is we had a reading on what the, um, on what the security risk was and we, we over-engineered it, you know, mm. we, we, yeah. we, um, um, so if I can give you, if I can give you, um, the sort of day in the life on a Monday yeah, Hit and, me. and day in the life on the, on a Friday, um, well, so, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, weekends are Friday and Saturday. So Sunday morning was our oh. was our first day of the week, and Thursday was our our Friday. Oh, gotcha. So on Sunday morning, um, I would um, wake up at five thirty uh, for an eight thirty flight, um, and door to door, I would leave at six thirty, and we would be I would be at my desk in the office in Iraq. Uh, around two, uh, two thirty local time. So they, the flight was three or four hours, three hours. No, the flight was an hour and a half. The okay. flight was um, was was a breeze, um, but you know, ahead of it, it was you know half an hour, forty five minutes to get to the airport. You got to get to the airport an hour early, or you know, um, or they won't let you check in. Um, and then once you're on the flight, you're on the, the you're, that's the hour and a half. But then it's not like you could get an Uber from the airport to the base. Yeah. Did you guys have like security detail and all that? Exactly. Yeah. So, so, um, um, we had, um, security teams, uh, that would take us in, in convoys of four or five armored vehicles, um, from the airport to, uh, to the, the processing facility, to the office, to the site, um, and, um, and so that drive itself took an hour and change on a standard day. Mm. Um, but one of the other things that you don't think about is that like, you got to wait till the last person gets off the plane and the last person goes through customs for it 
for everybody to start moving. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're sat at the front of the plane and go through, you know, first one through customs. You, you, you're there in the airport for an hour and a half waiting for everybody to come through. And then you get on. Get in the armored vehicles and yep. go to work. You, well, yeah. You get in the armored vehicles and you go to, you know, you, you, you drive around Vosra and then you, um, the first security checkpoint that you encounter is the, the oil field police. These are um, the Iraqi um, uh, uh, military units set up to guard the, the country's natural resources. Right. Um, and, um, you know, they were good at protecting the perimeter from threats, and they were also good at, at holding us up when it was um, expedient or, you know, when, when, um, uh, um, when making our lives inconvenient was helpful to them. Mm. Uh, What's so- an example of that? Well, you know, I never, I never really got a good answer, but we always heard that, you know, that, that, um, you know, so this, this was like a, a, this venture was 51% Iraqi gas, South, uh, South Iraqi gas company or whatever. Right. It was, um, 44% shell Hmm. and it was 5% Mitsubishi and the 5% Mitsubishi, we had the rights to, um, once we had fulfilled the local market with natural gas, we had the right to start exporting the natural gas and selling it on the market to get money for uh, Iraq. Um, In order to do that, we needed to make um, a liquefied natural gas plant, a very expensive thing to do. Um, But Mitsubishi saw the opportunity to get gas and they saw the need to, because I think Fukushima Daiichi, the nuclear plant disaster, was in 2011, um, and they need they 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 desperately need uh, uh, natural gas now that they've gone off of nuclear. Ah, so um, so the the 51 percent would be negotiating, you know, a term against the 49 percent, right? And you know, there there are different levers you have when you negotiate, you know, one of them is, you know, price and another one is terms. And then we found out another one was just making life hard. So, yeah. So, you know, I I don't have any evidence of this, but I, what I, what I've heard or what I've been told is that, you know, when, when they were negotiating something and, 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 um, you know, they just hold us up at at the checkpoint. A little bit longer to get in. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, so there was that. And then we, once we get through that perimeter, we've got our own static perimeter um, and we, you know, go through that. And then we have like a late lunch, put our stuff in our um, rooms. Um, Yeah. Did you guys stay on site? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, um, there were 120 beds um, and a a dining facility, um, tennis court, you know, um, just things for people to live you know, for five days. It was dorm life. It was dorm life in a way. It was dorm life, but like, it was always like, instead of like hanging out in the dorms and be like, uh, you know, like hear about some party, you'd like, if you'd hang out outside the dorms, like you'd catch an action item. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. You'd be busier. So everybody was just in their room. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it kind of sort of led to some antisocial behavior of like, you know, I, we can look at that spreadsheet tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are these kinds of kinds of people that you're with at this point? I mean, is it family men mostly? Like you said, you can't build this whole workforce on bachelors. So like who are the males and females in the in the you know in the dorm life with you? Yeah. The um 
let's see, if I look around the finance department, like of which I was a part, we had um, an Egyptian controller, we had a British CFO, we had um, a French um, uh, uh, treasury manager, we had a Filipina um, project finance manager, and um, we had a Jordanian audit manager. Um, so it was it was a really it was a really diverse crew. We and and we had um, um, uh, a lot of South Asians, a lot of Pakistanis and Indians, hmm. um, and uh, so it was it was just this this real diverse crew of, of folks that 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 were around there. And I'll tell you now that I think about it, the the tennis court was used far more often for cricket than for tennis. Yeah, that's a that's a South Asian sport. Right? It is, it is. And then you know the Aussies would get involved in the Brits. You know, yeah, it's it's this sort of uh, you know colonial sport that I had no exposure to before leaving America, and now you know is is, is fascinating. To cricket me. is a fascinating sport. Yeah, it's amazing. I've watched it on ESPN twelve before. <laughs> <laughs> were they wearing all white or were they in different colors? Uh, no, they they were not in all white. Okay, okay. Is it different? The one, the the five day cricket, the, that's the one where they're in all white, where uh, a tournament can last like, you know, three or four or five days. It's like the only sport that doesn't really have a, I mean, even I guess baseball being the other one, but uh, cricket doesn't have a time limit. Oh, no. Right? No, no, no. You got to retire every batter. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's different ways to end the game, but they're, they're, it's, they certainly stretch out the the ones ones where they were in the color jerseys is uh, I, I think they they made they changed uh, or they introduced a, a, a format of cricket that is kind of similar in length to a baseball game hmm. kind of a four hour deal yeah and um, and it's great because you um, in the five day version you're playing defense if if you're a batter you're playing defense as much as possible because you're just waiting for you have an unlimited number of pitches to hit if you like right. you just wait for wait for him to make a mistake yeah um, in this format there's only um, there's only I think like uh, uh, ten overs or something and so the incentive is like rack up the points swing for the fences because yeah. if you don't you know yeah. that's one ball closer to the game ending yeah gotcha so. Um, uh, so th- this is the stuff I'm learning, you know, yeah. <laughs> while I'm, while I'm, uh, you know, working in Iraq. And so that, so that, you know, the idea is we would spend like eight to 10 hours sometimes en route, get, just getting the office on Monday morning. Right. And then, um, you know, it was a, a, a mad dash to get anything done that day. Um, the Iraqis work from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. Mm. And uh, so we, we often just would see them very briefly on that right. Sunday, on that Sunday afternoon. And then, um, you know, we work, you know, three days, you know, pretty full on, um, like I say, getting action items after dinner and yeah. all that sort of crap. And, uh, and then, um, on Thursday morning at 1130, we would start mobilizing to go back to the airport to get on the three thirty flight. That would get it back into Dubai at at, uh, at seven, and uh, um, so it was just a, a really the logistics made for a really really strange working environment. So were all five hundred of you guys traveling at at, at a time? Because you said there were five hundred uh, Shell employees working next to five thousand Iraqis. 
They, there were two schedules you could be on. Um, you could be a commuter like me mm-hmm. um, and spend the weekends in Dubai, or you could be a rotator. When rotators uh, were usually four, uh, uh, 28 days on, 28 days off, 28 days on, 28 days off. And there's, there's two of them that are back to back with each other. Alpha and a Bravo. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had those people flying back to, um, to, uh, uh, Glasgow or, Mm. um, you know, gotcha. So those were people that were, uh, away from home for long stretches of time, but then they still were able to be home. Yeah. For a month or, you know, or they'd go live in Thailand for a month or, you know, um, and so um, I think the answer to your question is that, no, we're not traveling all at one shot. We would have, um, I think the most we traveled with when I was there was 120 people. Mm. And that'll get you about three quarters of a 737. Yeah. Um, and we were, you know, we were there. We flew in with um, with other people doing the same thing as us. And, and they were working for um, um, Lukoil, the Russians. They were working for Sinuk, the Chinese. Um, it was very interesting to be in the Basra airport at, at the time I was there. Um, you know, there. There was opportunity in the air, and, and there were a lot of different, um, you know, countries um, looking to, um, um, you know, uh, leverage this boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, looking to looking to um, to. To leverage this boom, I mean, there's when you sort of look around the world at at where the oil is, um, it's all controlled by sovereigns. It's all owned by, um, you know, it's more and more owned by national oil companies than by than by, um, you know, Exxon's. And for as big as Exxon is, and as big as Shell is, these companies are tiny, are very small fish compared to Saudi Aramco or the Chinese National Oil Company. Right. Um, and um, uh, it's um, uh, so, yeah, when a new when a new basin, when a new frontier gets gets discovered or de-risked like Iraq was in, in the 2010s, um, you know, that there's there's a lot of um, a lot of people from a lot of different places uh, that, you know, that might be interested in helping develop that resource. Right. Makes makes good sense. It, it's crazy to me that, you know, the Iraqis have the resource, but they're still, you know, partners. <laughs> yeah. And it seems seems uh, uh, antithetical to me to, to think that someone can come in and, and and, you know, because they have the know how and the and, and the expertise to to leverage your resource that they become as valuable as you are having the resource. And it's a pretty interesting way that that works. Yeah. And it, it, it changes over time. Um, the ob- because the Iraqi Iraqis get better. They, yeah. they, they learn, they know they, yeah. now they know how to do it themselves. They don't need you anymore. That's right. That's right. Um, the deal, the deal was not a deal in perpetuity. It was only 20, it was only the deal was a 25 year deal. And, um, with the option to extend for another 25 years and, um, you know, we went into the deal basically saying that, you know, after a, a sort of um, learning curve time of, of five to 10 years, that this would be an Iraqi company. Mm. You know, there, there, there was nothing that we were doing that, that they couldn't do. It's just they were, um, you know, well, those of us, you know, who were 
um, you know, learning the finer points of finance, you know, were doing that. They were, you know, they were hustling to, to put the lights on. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but, you know, if we could, if we could sort of download those, those things that we knew onto them, there was, there's absolutely no stopping them. Mm. And so, and you've seen this pattern before, you know, that, um, the, um, it, you know, they found oil in Abu Dhabi in, in 1966, I think. And, um, it was a case of, of, they really didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, they had, they had to go ask questions and, and bring in experts. Um, and now they're, they're one of the most sophisticated companies uh, really? in, in the space. Yeah. And, and so, um, um, yeah, things happen, you know, interns turn into graduate hires, graduate hires turn into middle management, middle management turns into senior leadership. And, and, and that just doesn't happen, happen overnight. Right. So, um, um, so yeah, maybe, maybe it's a little, it, it feels, it might feel a little bit strange that, that, that to say that someone didn't have the know-how, but, um, um, yeah, they were, they were, they had other priorities. Yeah. And, and but you, t- you, you guys taught it to him. It seems like, or the company did the, the, the it wasn't, we're going to smash and grab on, on this, you know, natural resource. We're going to come in as a partner. We're going to teach you how to stand on your own two feet and then we'll be gone. You can do it yourself. Yeah. Th- th- I mean, that was certainly the plan. Um, um, has that happened? Well, a lot of other things have happened. Um, you know, ISIS happened, you know, the price of oil fell by 50%, you know, in 2014, it's doing better now, but, um, um, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's not always a straight line. Mm. Um, you know, when, when we started or when I, when I, when I started and when the comp, when the joint venture went live in 2013, they were capturing 250 million cubic feet of gas a day. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, let's see, by the time I left in 2016, we were doing 750. So we had, tri- oh, wow. Yeah, we had tripled throughput. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we, we could have quadrupled it or quintupled it. We, we could have taught the Iraqis a lot faster. We could have made them more involved a lot quicker. Um, so, you know, we, we, we did as well as we could, you know, a bunch of people just way out of our element, you know, both Westerners getting chucked into Iraqi culture right. and, and, and Iraqis, you know, who had worked a certain way for, for their entire life, um, uh, you know, they were out of their element and doing some of the things that we were asking them to do. Um, so, so it was, it was, it was hard, you know, that the, the, the getting the gra- the gas to the power plant part was easy. It was like the, the, the people part was, was, was super hard. It always know? is man. Yeah. And it's the part that, uh, no, you know, nobody wants to pay for. It's, it's the part that you don't see, you know, I assume when you guys are running an oil rig, it's, it's a, it's a, or an oil operation or a natural gas operation that it's this just cash register, just running. There's money coming out of the ground every single minute and you guys have to decide what to do with it. And that's a tangible thing. Well, in the, I, in this particular deal, um, um, we needed to spend a lot of money. So we needed to, I mean, the, the, the pipelines, um, hadn't been replaced in, in a long time that the, um, the natural gas processing unit that we had that we lived next to um, was uh, built in 1983. And there were two units 
And these two units separated the methane from the ethane from the propane from the butane. Um, and um, they started during the sanctions period, which was after Saddam invaded Kuwait in 1991, all the way up through 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq. Through the sanctions period, they could not get replacement parts mm. for for that because they, so they that's were, why all the infrastructure fell into disrepair. Yeah, yeah, they were they were you know blacklisted. Yeah. They they couldn't they couldn't you know um, they couldn't get spare parts, and so. Um, in a very in in what I learned was a very typical Iraqi solution to a problem. They took down. There were two units. They took down one unit, cannibalized it for parts, and it, this second unit has been Frankenstein running for almost forty years now. Wow! Um, and they just this was this was kind of the Iraqi way. It was like, you know, shit. We got this problem. We don't you know quite have the materials to fix it, but damn it, we're gonna make you know we're gonna. We're gonna do what we can to 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 get it to get it done, yeah. and it's not it's not it ain't pretty, but um, hell, it ain't even optimal. But it's <laughs> it's it's fucking it's limping along, yeah. you know, and and um, and so and so um, uh, we needed to everybody needed to spend money to um, to basically rebuild that that second. Um, processing unit that that came down and was Frankenstein. Um, you know all the pipelines that had were corroded. They, they all needed to be replaced in order to get from 250 million cubic feet a day to 750 million cubic feet a day. We had to spend a lot of money. We had mm. to uh, you know um, we had to spend a lot of money before a lot of money came in. And for Shell, the big payoff was was um, we, we would we could structure it so that we could make money. Uh, and the Iraqis could make money selling all the gas domestically, but the real, real value, the real moonshot, the real opportunity, was was producing enough gas that we that Iraq had plenty that they were actually mm. oversupplied, yeah, and that that this gas could start to be exported um, for um, uh, uh, you know shipped to Japan and and South Africa and and, and every other place in the world. Um, now you have an export. Now you've got Whereas an expert. B- before you were just setting it on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, uh, so, um, we had to spend a lot of money before a lot of money came in, and we got to the point where, um, um, so. The South Gas Company contributed uh, assets, their existing plant and pipelines right. that, that were valued by independent auditors for something like $1.5 billion. That's a lot of metal. That's a lot of metal, yeah. Um, and, um, and so uh, Shell and Mitsubishi, you know, we said, all right, we're going to, we're going to start um, investing our capital until we reach a level such that we're, we're, we're 49%, 51% partners. Exactly. And then we both go forward on a 51, 49 deal. You know, mm. if a bill comes in, you pay 59, 51% of it, we'll pay 49% of it. So Shell ultimately had 1.49, whatever billion dollars to spend in order to get this thing viable and make it a viable partnership. Um, well, um, once we spent that money, then, then the revenue, 
that the venture generated, then we got 49% of that revenue. Right. Whereas, you know, at the very beginning, South Gas Company got basically 100% of the revenue. Right. We sort of earned into it. Yeah. Right. And so, and so the deal was that, um, that right around the same time we, we reached 49%, the um, uh, two things happened. ISIS popped off in the north. Mm. And I heard somewhere from someone that they were spending uh, something like 75% of their monthly budget, the Iraq national government, on supporting troops fighting ISIS. Like they had this tremendous like bill coming due yeah. from fighting ISIS. And at the same time in 2014, the price of oil fell from about $100 a barrel to something like 45 And um, oil income was 90% of Iraq's um, income. So they've got this huge problem where they have uh, they need to allocate resources to fight terrorism. And their pot of resources is not is worth in. half as much as it was right, right, last year. Right. Yeah. So the stream of resources is... The river is 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 half as is half as is as flowy as it was wow. last year. So did that manifest itself in Iraq not being able to fight off ISIS? Um, I don't know. I don't know the causes of, of of that. I was I was far more involved in in the oil and gas part in the south, and and the deal in the south was that that um, that Iraq was partners with a bunch of companies, and these companies were were including ours, were spending money with the thought or with the idea that Iraq was going to be able to chip in its 51%. And you don't want to get into a situation where you're just paying, um, you've paid for 60% of the bill, but you only own 49% of the company and 49% of the revenue. So um, we and a whole bunch of other oil companies operating in, in the South, you know, got into this crunch where, you know, in order to, um, in order to to develop the resources along the path that we had agreed upon, money would need to go in, and money would go in from the international oil companies, and it would also need to go in from the Iraqi government. The Iraqi government didn't have any, and so um, so. Did you guys break up? <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't, but uh, we did make. I mean, we we you know. We had to make plans to, we had to think about it. Yeah. You know, we had to, we had a scenario plan, you know, and it wasn't a fun job, you know, being in the finance department. My, my, my purview was, was operating expenses, which was everything from, um, you know, spare parts and maintenance to like logistics costs, getting us in and out of the country to, um, like salaries of shell staff and, and Iraqi staff. And yeah, it wasn't very fun to do scenario planning where like, Okay, half of this is gone. Okay, eighty yeah. percent of this is gone. What does yeah. this look like? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you ask, you know, did we live happily ever after? Um, you know, we we did we did what uh, we did pretty well, and we did you know considering the circumstances and 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 um, um, maybe it was naive, but I I thought a lot about it as um, you know I wondered what. You know, an entrepreneur in Saigon in maybe 1980 was was thinking in Vietnam. Um, you know, we look back on Vietnam now, 40 years ago. You know, it was a 50 years ago. It was you know a war zone, and now, you know, it's a it's a wonderful place to go on vacation. Awesome, 
you know, awesome people, awesome surfing, <laughs> awesome, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, motorcycle riding, um, or whatever you want to do. And, um, it was like, wow, what if, what if, what if we could tell our kids, you know, that like that Iraq used to be this really messy place. And then, you know, they, um, you know, they with first a little bit of help from, from the outside world, but, but, you know, only a hand at first and, and then they stand up and, you know, it's a place where you can go on vacation in 2060, say, that's kind of, that's kind of what my, my idealistic mind was, was, was thinking, you know, when I started there in 2013, um, I still hope it gets that way, but I'm, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure it'll be 2060 or it might be a little longer. Who knows? Yeah. Well, you left ultimately at some point. I left. I, cool. I, I I got to the end of my assignment. My assignment was three years, and then Shell, you know, just sort of rotates you around every every three to four years. And, and my time was up, and and uh, uh, and I moved on to the next thing. You went and rode motorcycles around Europe for a little while. You took like this badass sabbatical where you rode motorcycles all over the country or all over the world. Well, I just worked three years in Iraq. I mean, what was I going to go work in a desk in Houston right yeah. away? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely exactly. not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, I, I, I had this idea. I decided when I finished my, when I finished my time in Iraq that I would go and, um, and like live a little, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I had, I had, while I was living in the Middle East, I had done a couple of motorcycle tours in different countries with my, with my friends. And, uh, and I thought it was, a, it was just a great way to explore a new place. You can mm. just throw the kickstand down and start a conversation with somebody you know, in five seconds versus like having to look for a parking place and like, yeah. oh, where should I do with my luggage and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So, um, so in the summer of 2016, when I ended in Iraq, um, I asked Shell for some unpaid leave. I just wanted a little time to recharge my batteries. They agreed on 90 days, three months. And I, uh, I said, fantastic. And so, um, the plan that I hatched in my head was to uh, basically ride a, ride a motorcycle around Europe for three months, and um, and um, I I sort of as the plan came together, it looked increasingly difficult to actually um, buy, register, and insure a motorcycle in you know a a, a place remote for me. You know, remember I was in, I was, you know, in Iraq and Dubai, you know, trying to plan, okay, should I buy a motorcycle in Greece or in Spain or Germany? And then it quickly became, okay, what are the, what are the logistical, what are the, the, the administrative steps that I need to fulfill? Um, and I ended up, um, I ended up deciding on starting in, in, in the UK because I could speak the language and, I, and you know, also, you've had friends. all this exposure to that culture over I the did. last ten yeah. years or whatever. I did, and um, and so um, I found a motorcycle online and uh, I called him up, put a deposit down on it, and, and ended up buying it. And then realized I spent the next two months like going, "Oh shit, how am I going to register and insure this thing um, so that I don't have to? Um, I don't." You know, uh, I don't have to, to to go back to the first standby, which was renting. I think when I priced out renting a motorcycle for three months from the UK, it was it was ten grand. Right. And I thought that is that is 
ridiculous. I'm not going to, I'm going to buy a bike and maybe send it back to home to me. I could leave it in a ditch and I'd be better off right. than, than if I, if I rented a motorcycle for $10,000. Um, but then, so I said, Oh, I got a great idea. Let's just buy one. And then you go, Oh shit. How do I register it? How do I insure it? Mm, now I'm, now I'm seeing the wheels turn in here and see how you ultimately built your business that you have now. It, 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 it was an itch that I first had I said, oh, no, there is this layer of friction. There's this layer of molasses between me and what I want. And there's nobody, no matter who I call, I am a long tail customer. I am the 20% that you don't focus on. Hmm. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the next one of me is going to walk through their door in two years. Yeah. Why well, focus on solving that problem? Exactly. It, um, um, and so... So I sort of felt that pain myself and, and, and long story short, I solved the problem and, um, ended up, um, going into, uh, picking up my bike in Oxford, UK and driving down to the South coast, getting on a ferry, crossing over into Normandy and, um, and then doing a big clockwise circle, um, around Europe that took me to the the low countries and then up to Scandinavia, down the Baltics, down to the Dalmatian Sea, kind of Croatia, across, um, um, across Italy, up, up France and, and, and back to where I started in the UK. We can drill down on any of those places if you want, but, uh, but that was sort of the big picture idea was uh 90 days big clockwise circle um let's go explore let's go explore europe during the summertime then i'll sell my bike and go back to back to my job did you did you sell it i did i ended up selling it um i bought it for 12 i sold it for eight okay and um and four thousand dollars better than ten thousand dollars it is it is and you know what it there's there's also there's the economic aspect but like the fact that I could put my own stickers on my bike, you know, the fact that it was my bike, you know, and, and if I dropped it, you know, the rental company wasn't going to charge me a million dollars, you know, uh, was it, it a BMW? It was a BMW. Yeah. It was a okay. BMW. I, you know, uh, I've watched a uh, long way round and long way down, uh, with, uh, uh, Charlie Borman and, um, um, uh, the other guy. Is that where they go to Russia on a bike? Uh, yeah, well, they, 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 there are a number of them and they're, they're awesome. You should watch them if you're, if you're into travel. Um, but, uh, but they ended up using BMWs and, um, and, and I just had this, this, you know, I got good advice from the Brits. Like if you're, if your triumph breaks down in Latvia, good luck. No chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if your BMW breaks down anywhere, I mean, yep. it, it, it might, it'll cost you some money, but you'll be able to get it serviced. And they're also good touring bikes, right? I really enjoyed mine. I Where'd really you sleep? enjoyed it. Did you camp? You know, I thought I was going to camp I, uh, more than I did. Um, but the, um, the, the economy of the pannier boxes of my saddle bags limited me to, I just couldn't take a tent and sleeping bag and stuff. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, I stayed in a lot of Airbnbs and hostels and, 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 uh, hotels and that sort of stuff. And then you came back to the States. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I came back to Houston and I, and I, I, um, wonderful thing about working for Shell is that they sort of bounce you around every three years to a different assignment. And, and Shell is a huge diverse company that does everything from seeing if there's oil in the ground to turning that oil into gasoline or natural gas to, you know, selling that natural gas to, to you at the pump. Um, 
And so um, I went from this job where I was, op- you know, looking after the operations of an existing asset to exploring for an asset that didn't even exist yet. We were. Um, uh, this is the new job. This was the job in Houston. I was finance manager for Deepwater Exploration um, in the Gulf of Mexico. Trying to find out if there's oil in the ground under the ocean. Man, it is um, an incredible feat of engineering that these boats are doing. Um, these these uh, drill ships are um, dynamically geo-positioning themselves to sit in a... a, a, a Small area, a, yeah, an area that's you know has tolerances of, of down to a meter or so. Right, so that, so it's like spot lock. It's like the trolling motors that don't let you move. That's right, that's yeah. right. Except you're doing that for a you know a fifty ton, you know five hundred ton ship, yeah. and then you've got ten thousand feet of riser between the bottom of the boat and the bottom of the ocean. Riser pipe. Ah, and then within that pipe, you've got another pipe that is drilling down. 40 to 50,000 feet of rock. And it's, it's like 10 miles, right? It's like 10 miles. And, you know, I'm holding up a a, 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 a can of sparkling water right now. And that's the size of the drill bit that you're yeah. trying to land in, you know, something that's the size of a bedroom. And how far down was it? You said 10,000 feet? Um, 10,000 feet of water, 40, 50,000 feet of, uh, of, of rock that we we're going after through. That. Yeah. Trying to find oil. Trying to find oil, yeah. or or natural gas, or did you care? Um, wanted oil. Yeah, um, yeah, wanted oil. Yeah, um, and so um, it was a really interesting exercise. Um, it it um, the the probability of success in any one of these individual wells. Um, these were initial exploration wells, which means we don't know. We're just testing to see. We have the seismic data to see that there might be some structure that might hold oil down there, but no one's ever drilled within 50, 100 miles of this. So um, um, these wells had a probability of success of maybe 30%. Mm, that's, um, pretty, that's pretty high, though. It's, it's because it seems like it's, I don't know. It seems like a money losing proposition to go out there and prospect and try to track this stuff down, even though you are informed, you know, with data, but it still sounds like something that, but just imagine that, that the, so these drill ships that are so sophisticated, the, uh, when I was working, they, they cost a million dollars a day and to they operate would, mm-hmm, and they would be on site for, um, for a hundred days. They would be on site for 50 to a hundred days. And so, you know, imagine being wrong 70% of the time spending a hundred million dollars. Yeah. But it's high stakes. It is high stakes, but when they hit the resource might be worth $8 billion. Right. So this experience taught me how to think, well, exposed me to thinking about, um, you know, portfolio of, of risky options. Right. It doesn't all have to be a home run every time. Sometimes no. you got to take a 30%, you know, a shot at something that has a 30% chance of paying off as long as it can, you know, it 20 X your money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there's also, there's also like an interesting kind of sequence of operations that, that, that operating in that much uncertainty forces you to do put it this way. You don't build a refinery before you find the oil. Sure. So, um, and you don't even build a refinery after you've found the oil once, because that's just one little Coke can sized hole in the ground. 
you need to punch like four or five more of those in the ground to see how wide the reservoir is, to see how deep it goes, to see where the water contact is. And, um, and so um, this sort of exposed me to um, de-risking things in steps, not building the refinery before I've drilled the well, not sizing the refinery before I know how much oil is in the ground there. Right. And, um, and, and so I've sort of brought these into, brought that mindset into the, into the entrepreneurial world. It's, it's, um, you have to de-risk things. You have, you, a startup is fundamentally a set of, of assumptions and you just got to go, uh, test each one of those assumptions, you know, one or two at a time and just pick the most logical order. Cause if you don't, then you'll have a refinery with no oil in it. Right. I, I noticed that when you were starting your, your company is, is that you were identifying assumptions. I was, I was on, you know, an, an email list of some sort. Um, when you, when you first started visitor.us, um, went around it and you said, here's my assumption and here's what I'm going to try out and we'll see if this works. And it, it was a very pragmatic approach and it makes a whole lot of sense when I hear you say it, but it's like, it's almost, uh, it, it, it seems, it seems innate to me. Like it's, it seems like you just knew that stuff, but you did learn it. I realized, but it's such a pragmatic approach to starting a business and it seems to be paying off. Well, um, I'm flattered. Um, I'm, I'm having the time of my life helping, uh, travelers like me explore America. I mean, I'm, I'm helping my, I'm serving my community, serving people that I have this affinity with. And, and that's ultimately what feels good to me. Um, I, I did, I, um, I think I did a really smart thing by writing that series of emails because, um, it took me outside of my head. I said, uh, I had this, I, I, I thought this might be a business opportunity and I wanted everyone, everyone that I knew that was smart to start to try to poke holes in this because I'd rather a friend find the reason that I shouldn't do the business, but I haven't thought about that reason. I'd rather have that friend find it for me before, before you built a refinery. Exactly. With no oil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the idea was, let me just, ex, let me just, um, brain dump, <laughs> let me just brain dump this yeah. to, 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 to a couple dozen people that are from, you know, have very different perspectives and walks of life and, and experiences. And, uh, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why people, don't want to come to America and visit it for long enough to buy a car and tell me why the way that I think it can be done is, uh, you know, tell me, show me what I'm missing. Give me your perspective and tell me what I, um, um, what I, what I'm missing, what I can't see. Um, so that I I, I, I identify my blind spots. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so, um, uh, that that was I don't know why I decided to start doing that, but I did, and and it's been awesome. It's been an awesome like um, uh, external accountability tool. That's that that's it too. You know, just 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 knowing just knowing that I've been writing this letter for every quarter or so, you know, for for four years now. Like, you know, sometimes I you know sometimes in the middle of a quarter I think to myself, well, shit, what am I gonna what am I what am I going to write about this quarter? 
I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's the accountability part. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And just having, having you all, um, uh, just, uh, externalizes it and, and, and makes me, makes me, uh, you know, gives me that fire above and beyond what I would have uh, on my own. Well, it's, it's an honor to be on that list because, uh, I, I get to know what's going on on the ground level. I get to know what's happening inside your ears with growing this thing that you started as an idea, as a website, as some, you know, some little testing, testing uh, practices in Houston four years ago, or whenever it was. And then now to see it all come up and happen and be positioned here in Montana. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. It's happening. It's- well, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. It's happening. And I thank you. And I think like the Iraq story, you know, the headline is that, um, is that, you know, we tripled throughput in, in three years and I was there during those three years. So it yeah. must've been, a, you know, it yeah, must've exactly. been me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the, the tempting, you know, story is to say, you know, I, I started with this idea, I emailed some people and, you know, now here four years later, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a real thing and it's hard. It's, 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 uh, it's, you know, it's, it's moving and, 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 and gaining steam, you know, but the fact of the matter is there's, it's, it never goes in a straight line. Um, you know, the, the pandemic, um, uh, shut me down for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the borders, travel restriction, the borders being shut down. Yeah. Yeah. The borders were shut on, on, uh, April, uh, excuse me, on March 11th, uh, was the first, uh, was the European travel ban, um, uh, to the U S and it's still, it's still in effect. Um, uh, and so, um, yeah, there was, a, there was, uh, you know, six months in the summer of last year that I, along with everybody else, didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. Didn't know if this was ever going to be a, you know, if, if life was ever going to be the same, but, um, but having been through that 2008 crisis, you know, um, having sort of, you know, been cauterized a bit, you just, I, you know, I, I was able to hang in there and say, this looks bad. It is bad, you know, um, but life is going to go on. And, on the other side of this, there will be opportunity. Um, and, um, yeah. And if you think about international visitation to America, only one way it can go (laughs) (laughs) from right here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the way that, you know, the way that travel is going to happen going forward is, is going to be completely different. So it's, it's this, you know, one way to look at it is, oh shit, the sky is falling. And that certainly felt that way for, for a lot of, you know, for a lot of 2020, but you know, then you know, another way to, to, to look at it is, is that, um, this shakeup that has caused is, is created an opportunity for, um, you know, uh, a little young sapling to rise in the forest when all the trees fell down. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, uh, if, if you don't seize that opportunity, then, then, you know, it might not be that, you know, this is literally a once in a lifetime, uh, opportunity to be the sapling. Yeah. 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 I feel like, um, I feel like, um, uh, for the first kind of three years of the, of, for, for basically all of businesses life, I've, I've been being, I've been very deliberate. Um, you know, um, I've, I've, I've just tried to take it one customer at a time and learn everything that I can from each new customer. Um, I think that, um, in retrospect, what that 
did in, as opposed to say raising a bunch of money, hiring a team, spending tons on marketing, scaling big, big, big. Um, I would have run straight into a buzzsaw with mm. the pandemic. Um, um, and just by the virtue of, 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 um, of being st- deliberate, being conservative, of being conservative, of staying, of, of not trading my surfboard in for a 20 foot sailboat. Yeah. Um, or not trading my uh, figuratively, right. Or not yeah. trading my sailboat in for, you know, a, a 50 a foot yacht, yacht yeah. or, or, a, you know, a thousand foot battleship. Um, you know, just by staying in my current rig at my, it allowed me to, when the tide went out, to not get foundered on the, on, on the reef, yeah. you know, like, like, like the big boys do, uh, have, 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 has happened to so many companies. Um, and, um, so, you know, that, but this is very much like painting the target around the arrow, you know, only in, <laughs> only in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. This makes a lot of good sense now. <laughs> yeah. I meant it this way. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, I, uh, I, I'm glad to have your kudos on the company. Um, and, um, um, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited about, about, uh, about where we can go. I I think, um, I think part of my story is, is a guy who, who bought a lottery ticket and he didn't win the Powerball, but he, you know, he won, he got like sixth place, you know, and got a payout and got, you know, enough, to pay off his college loans and, and, you know, maybe have a little savings and maybe sort of get up his head above the waves and start to start to think about, okay, what, what can, what do I want to do? Exactly. Now, now you can actually think clearly because you're not just in reaction mode or right. trying to, trying maybe, to just put out fires right. all day. Or, yeah. Put, pay the next bill or, or, you know, and so, you know, I, I don't, I, like I say, I, I'm not, you know, uh, Working in Iraq, uh, I was able to save a, a, a good amount of money, not, you know, uh, enough to make me for the rest of my life, but enough for me to, to say, okay, what do I, what do I want to do? And, 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 and the answer that I've come up with is like, um, is, is being useful, is being useful. I like, um, I think that from a variety of different like backgrounds, um, a lot of different worldviews come at, come to the same conclusion. Um, you've got the good Samaritan, the parable of the good Samaritan in Christianity, um, where, you know, Jesus is explaining that here's how you help your neighbor. This is what you should do. Um, you know, take it to the, to another place. Um, you know, the, the, the secular humanist or maybe the atheist view is, is, is to do unto others as you would to have them do unto you. It's not do unto your buddies. It's not do unto your family. It's do unto others. Um, so I, th- I think that from, in you know, we could sort of go on with the world religions, but, um, but uh, I, th- I think, um, I think this, there's this universality of, of service towards, you know, being useful towards, towards other people. And, um, and, you know, I think now that I've, I, I, when I had the opportunity to get my head above the waves and sort of decide what direction I want to point, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. And, um, uh, that's, that's, 
that's kind of a North Star thing. Is um, and and you know the easiest people to be useful to are the people who whose experiences uh, you know who, whose problems you've faced. Um, and so well, it's back to like the the people who are uncomfortable, the people who don't know um, what to do next, the people mm-hmm. who are fish fishes out of water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you know what if what if there's this group of people that's wandering around our awesome country, you know, feeling like fish out of water, like what if we could help them? What, what if we could serve them? Yeah. What if we could, um, you know, what if we could make their stay a little bit easier and they have them stay a little bit longer, you know, from, you know, from the, the sort of moral perspective, that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to be a good Samaritan and, and, you know, do unto others, um, you know, f- uh, from a financial standpoint, um, Visitor.us is the only brand that I'm aware of that is focused specifically on the international visitor experience to America. There are brands that are focused on travel. There, are, you know, yeah. uh, there are brands that are are, are focused on um, on you know buying and selling cars and stuff. But the, there's no brand focused on the problems that are unique to international yeah, visitors. Yeah, like con- concierging for for. Uh, People visiting from other countries. Exactly. And so, so since there's nobody else doing that, that, that is, you know, potentially a financial opportunity and, and, and the byproduct is that when people can come to our country and spend time here, interacting with Americans, seeing our institutions, um, uh, I, I, having known so many people not from America who have told me that, you know, like, uh, you know, their favorite places in the world is Miami or New York. There's no beating it, you know, or like yeah. my cousin lives in Michigan, you know, there's a special place that America holds in a lot of people's hearts, mm. um, that we as Americans don't fully appreciate. And, um, and when they come here and when they spend time with us, they, they, they sort of develop this connection. That's, that's, that, that, um, that you can think of as like free diplomacy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's all, it's almost like branding. It's yeah. almost like a, a brand of, or, you know, it's almost like pushing your brand organically. Exactly. Through you, your people. You get, you got, yeah, you got your brand ambassadors who are these, you know, your unpaid. For 350 uh, unpaid, million Yeah, 350 Americans. unpaid, uh, million unpaid, uh, um, uh, salespeople. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think when people go back home from America, you know, they remember what they experienced. They remembered what, who they met. They remembered how they felt. And, um, um, and so I'm feeling tremendously lucky that these Venn diagrams of like, of, you know, personal and moral um, 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 interest and financial interest and like, um, you know, patriotic interest are sort of overlapping in this opportunity that I'm pursuing and, um, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity. I am super pumped that you're doing it. And I'm always proud to tell people about it. Um, tell just about everybody I can about what you're doing. Cause I think it's so cool. Oh, shucks. And thanks for having me in Montana. Montana is wonderful. And you are welcome up here anytime, Ben. I need to come back real soon. Please do. Dude, thanks for doing this. We'll talk, uh, talk to you real soon. Looking forward to it. See you, man. See ya. All right. 
How'd we do? Was it all right? Check out Matt's company, Visitor.us. It's super cool. Tell your buddies who live overseas who want to come to the States about it because it's a super cool product that they're pushing out there. It's awesome. I'm glad Matt was here. Love in Montana. I'll be back next week. You guys take care. We'll talk to you soon, all right? Pitchwire, play me out. <laughs>